Um, so thank you everyone for, for joining us today on this incredibly important topic. Um, we've all heard a lot about the Indo-Pacific in the last couple of years, the fastest growing region in the world. And I'm really delighted that we've got two outstanding guests with us tonight to be able to discuss in a bit more detail what we think the British position should be um, and how the, the last years panned out. Um, so firstly, uh, really delighted to have my fellow commissioner um, on a policy exchange report, a very British tilt, uh, Michael Orslin, distinguished research fellow at the Hoover Institute uh, and a huge contributor to, to that report. Uh, and secondly, we've got uh, Sophia Gaston. Uh, some of you may know her, she's been lighting up uh, British foreign policy for the past few years as a director of the British Foreign Policy Group and as an upcoming report looking at where we've got to and what we think we should do next. So firstly, I'm gonna hand over to Michael, who we call Misha, uh, to describe a bit about the, the work that we were doing together and the, the overarching ambitions of the policy exchange report. Well, Claire, thank you. Uh, thank you very much to the uh, China Research Group for uh, having me. I'll tell you, sitting here in, in Washington, DC, which is where I'm at, um, that uh, I read uh, regularly what CRG is, is putting out. Uh, and I think it's, it's uh, really doing a signal service. And, and so, you know, kudos um, for raising the level of awareness, I think here, at least in the States, on the UK's interests in China, the parliament's interest in China. And that's something that is obviously a conversation that is, that is really just beginning. And in, in that spirit, I think, was how the policy exchange report came about, uh, called again, a very British tilt. The idea being a tilt back towards um, the Indo-Pacific. And this was, if you're wondering, you know, why is an American involved and was you know, involved in helping draft it? Um, this was an international commission. It was chaired by the former prime minister of Canada, um, uh, Stephen Harper. It had um, members from uh, around, uh, around the, the globe, including Alexander Downer, the Australian high commissioner and, and former foreign uh, minister of Australia. Um, Japan's former prime minister Shinzo Abe got involved. Uh, towards the end, it also had scholars from India, from the US, uh, from uh, throughout the region, throughout the Indo-Pacific, all designed to, in essence, um, not only talk about the view from the UK, but the view uh, in the region and the world of the UK and what the UK can and, and we hope should be and will be doing uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Um, we're going to talk more about, it, I think, during, during this discussion and debate, but I'll just very briefly highlight um, the way that the report came out with, with its um, conclusions, recommendations. Um, in essence, it divided into two, uh, two tracks for the UK to pursue, which was a prosperity program, a prosperity track, and a security track. And these, these would be interlinked in a way. They would work, and, uh, they would work together and they would, would reinforce each other. And the prosperity agenda uh, was um, issues uh, related, obviously, to trade and economics, but it was related to cyber issues, health issues, climate issues, and the like. Uh, and then on the, uh, on the security side was, of course, what we consider more traditional and pure security, but also the politics of, of the equation. Um, the, the underlying goal of, of the report and of the commission's conclusions was to reaffirm an open architecture for free and independent nations based on rules, laws, norms, and, and procedures of behavior throughout the Indo-Pacific. And it, it recognized and argued that the UK has a major role to play. Now, again, if you sit here in Washington, DC, the debate often becomes about how many aircraft carriers are you going to bring in or, or, or how many fighter jets. And, and 
the commission believes there's a role for the UK to play in that. Of course, the Queen Elizabeth, uh, your new aircraft carrier will be coming uh, to the region and that's very important. Uh, you have training, uh, you have training uh, um, bases in, in the region already. Of course, there's Diego Garcia, there's Brunei. There are, there are places where the UK is active from a security perspective, but there's so much more that, that the UK can do in terms of bringing standards, of bringing transparency, of bringing good governance and global issues to the region, uh, bringing uh, best practices in cyber, best practices in global health, uh, certainly climate change. All of these are areas where, quite honestly, the United States plays a role, but doesn't always play a, a leading role. And while no one you know, expects any nation, uh, certainly on the security side, to play a role larger than the United States, the UK with its partners, with the Commonwealth nations, uh, with the diplomatic relationships it has, very close ones with Japan, for example, Australia and others, really can play a unique role in essence in filling in many of the gaps, the things that sort of fall in between the cracks, but which are so important towards creating that life of shared interests and shared values throughout the region. Um, you can go onto the site to find the report. It has a lot of specific recommendations for the parliamentarians as well. There are specific recommendations about um, what should be done from a governmental perspective, uh, creating a three-star directorate uh, in the MOD, um, creating a special Indo-Pacific uh, envoy from the prime minister's office, having an Indo-Pacific in essence, a subcommission on the National Security Council. There are a great number of things that can be done structurally and institutionally to, um, uh, in essence, provide the, uh, the, the, the sinews for Britain to create a larger uh, strategic role. Uh, but the commission also thinks that, that the UK needs a strategy. It needs a formal strategy that needs to be drawn up that indicates the government's uh, core interests. So I'll leave it at that. I'm mean, happy to talk more about it. Um, but this was, again, an international effort that saw an enormous role for the UK to play in supporting you know, the basis of, of, uh, of a rules-based order that has benefited the Indo-Pacific and, and the larger world now for going on well 50, 60 years. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for all the, the granular work on that you did on that report. I know it was well received in government. Um, Sophia, if we come to you, you, you did this amazing landmark report, which I'm sure many people on the call would have read with Round Mitter next last year. Um, and without sort of sharing too much of your upcoming report, because I know it's not published yet, but it's, it's at the printers, I believe. Um, but could you give us your sense of, of where we are now in terms of the Indo-Pacific? Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I, I must note that this report to which you refer, um, I've been co-writing with um, my, my collaborator on China things, uh, Professor Rana Mitter from the University of Oxford. And uh, well, I'm very happy we've been extending our collaboration from our report last year, and uh, we're hoping to have a new one uh, out uh, before the summer recess. And uh, I think it's, it's sort of testament to the enormous amount that there has been going on in this space uh, this past year that an update that is simply looking at one year of developments uh, is is at over 40,000 words. So, <laughs> um, but we look forward to bring that into the world very soon. Um, the report will cover 
three key areas, and I think they're all things that we can hopefully get into the discussion today. Um, the report is on UK-China relations, uh, not specifically about the Indo-Pacific, although we, of course, um, uh, interrogate that in a number of ways. Um, but I think, it, you know, when we're talking about an Indo-Pacific tilt, um, while we are talking about advancing, you know, or participating in a kind of um, region of great economic dynamism, um, a region in which uh, there are all sorts of questions that need to be hashed out on security, on values, democracy, a lot of these questions about global governance um, will be decided in the Indo-Pacific. And I think it's absolutely right that we play a role in there. Um, we are, of course, also talking about um, how we respond to, accommodate, address, challenge um, a rising China, which is becoming increasingly um, dominant and, and um, confident in, in the region. So the three sections that we really look at in the report, um, the first is where, where is Britain at? Uh, we've obviously been through um, not just sort of 360, but we've been through a process of um, having, having a sort of whether you can call it a reckoning or a realization or, or a big fundamental shift in the way that we think about China. There has been a tangible move to put safeguards in place and to to be more attuned to our vulnerabilities. Um, but I think one of the points that we're trying to make in this report is that um, you can't just draw a line in the sand and say that that has been achieved, that we've had this moment and and that it's sort of over. Um, there's there's an enormous number of gaps still to be addressed. And I think, you know, building up our capabilities and competency on China is a long-term process and something that we need to invest in. Um, and there's absolutely no room for us to be complacent about that. And I think one of the things that we really need to think about is how we set up systems um, to be able to deal with um, a relationship that is going to necessarily require um, or compel some kinds of conflicts and tensions, um, and, and we haven't necessarily had the systems uh, set up to be able to um, expect and, and accommodate that. We also look at our key allies and partners, including key um, existing and potential partners in the Indo-Pacific, um, and try to demystify a little bit about um, where everybody is at with China, because of course we are not on our own um, in uh, going through a process of, of kind of reevaluating our relationship with China. Um, but I think we kind of want to challenge a little bit this idea that there's a kind of hierarchy of hawkishness um, you know, to say Germany's weak on China or Australia's strong on China. The reality is that all of our allies are pursuing uh, strategies of balance. Uh, it's just that the balance is falling in different places and choices are being made in, 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 in different ways. So um, I think we, we want to get into that a little bit more and also just to sort of highlight um, the fact that in the Indo-Pacific itself, a lot of the relationships remain complex um, and we really need to understand those uh, before we sort of wade into the region and, and, and we need to have a clear strategic intent in that respect. Um, and then the third section of the report looks at China and, and where things are going there. There have been some perceptible shifts 
in China's strategic thinking. Um, there have been shifts in its diplomatic tactics and its rhetoric. These are all important. We need to recognize and understand them and look at them in a historical context. Um, we need to understand what it means for China to be becoming more risk tolerant um, and certainly more confrontational um, and how that will play out um, in other alliances and, and on various issues. Um, I think just to sort of conclude, I would say that um, we, both Rana and I feel quite strongly that we cannot apply the sort of existing historical frames to China's behavior. It's, it's an utterly distinct country, it, it, its nature, its size, its power, its intentions, um, its connectivity are utterly distinct. And so we need to kind of um, be bold and, and dynamic and courageous in thinking about how we build competencies, capabilities, and, and, and sort of strategic frameworks around our relationships there. Um, how how we go about doing that and the investments that we make in understanding China and its uh, strategic interests and very importantly, its domestic political compact um, will be really essential for us to being able to engage with China and also to play really prominent role in the Indo-Pacific from a much more confident position. So that's what I'll leave it there, but uh, look forward to getting into to some more detail. Well, I mean, lots to get into there. And I think it's really interesting that sort of Mishi, we were talking about a credible offer that we can we can sort of put forward to, to members of the Indo-Pacific. And Sophia, you're talking about the competencies that we need to sort of build up. Uh, and I will dig into that in a second, but I should say um, for everyone watching, there is a Q&A box. Uh, please do put in your questions and we can put them to our brilliant panelists. Um, and uh, yes, if you will, we'll just, I think if we could start just in terms of, our, our foreign uh, policy partners, our key allies, and I might come to you, Misha, first on the Biden administration. What do you think is the impression in Washington now about the UK's offer? And where do you think um, the, the potential is from their point of view? It's a great question. I, first, I think the honest answer is that it's still forming. You know, this is an administration that's um, barely six months old at this point. Um, they have not released their own national security strategy. That's our capstone document. Um, a little bit like your, uh, a bit like the integrated review, but but it's you know different in its own ways. That then leads to a flow of other documents. Um, traditionally, a national defense strategy, a national military strategy. Um, the Trump administration, if you look at what it put out, they actually put out a, a raft of documents. Um, including those that I mentioned, but others as well. They came out with a, a strategy from, uh, from the National Security Council. They had uh, the first Indo-Pacific security strategy in a generation. The last one uh, was from the Clinton administration. Um, they also had one from the State Department, um, the policy planning staff. Um, so they actually came out with, whether you agreed with it or not, a, a, a very robust set of, of documents and then a, a series of supporting speeches by principals such as the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the um, former Attorney General Bill Barr, the head of the um, the FBI, and and others that were all designed to, um, in essence, to to um, you know give the the articulation and the reasoning behind this new American strategy of some called confrontation, I called reciprocity. Um, for the most part, I think with the Biden administration, they've they've maintained that. But again, it could be that it's maintained simply because 
they haven't gotten to their own point of releasing their strategies and then indicating what it is they're going to be doing. And so from that, the question of, of partners and allies um, flows. Now, the U.S., because we have formal alliances in the region, five of them, Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia, uh, Thailand, and the Philippines, um, those always structure America's um, security relations and, and from it, um, much of the political and economic relationships that we have, those are the, the sort of go-to capitals um, that, we, uh, that we see. Um, but I think there's no question that, that Washington is extremely interested in the um, articulations that London has been making and Whitehall has been making about a larger role uh, in the region. And of course, the policy exchange report was part uh, of trying to, you know, to, to further that along, which is to say not just from a U.S. perspective, but from Washington's view that there is a, a clear strategy on the part of the UK. These are the areas that the UK is going to focus, be it, you know, digital security or, or, or be it, uh, you know, developing fintech in the region, things like that. Um, and therefore, Washington should begin to think how to partner with, uh, with the UK. Now, what's easiest from the, for the Biden administration's perspective, of course, is looking at the security side, looking at um, the Queen Elizabeth, for example, going to the region and then thinking potentially about how the UK might fit into what we could call a quad plus arrangement. The quad, again, the quadrilateral security dialogue of the US, Japan, Australia, and India was revitalized, started in 2007. Former Japanese Prime Minister Abe came up with the idea, quickly went into abeyance, and then the, the um, Trump administration revitalized it or revivified it in, in 2017. They had regular meetings at the foreign secretary level. The Biden administration, to its credit, not only continued that, but in, in fact enhanced it by doing both um, uh, the meetings at the foreign secretary level, but also at the principal's level. So there was a meeting of the heads of state or the heads of government. And it's just been reported that the, uh, the Biden administration will be hosting a, an in-person meeting that a virtual one uh, the next year. So that I think is an area where the Biden administration will be looking for a UK, potentially a UK role and, and quite uh, frankly, a, a, a French role as well. An area that I think uh, is problematic uh, potentially is of course the Biden administration has to this point continued the sanctions and the uh, pressure on the tech companies uh, for the most part that the, that the Trump administration instituted. Um, of course, preventing Huawei from being in uh, the US 5G networks, um, but also um, clamping down on their access to um, semiconductor chips uh, and other tech-related um, tech industries. So when news comes out, as it did last week, about the Newport uh, fabricating uh, factory sale to a Chinese-controlled company, that's really an, issue, an area where I think there's going to be um, divergence between London and Washington. And um, on the one hand, I think um, the UK, you know, it will help Washington understand where partnership can be had if there's a very clear policy that comes out from the UK on, on uh, what, what will be allowed and what won't be allowed. Uh, and this also goes into other areas of, uh, of um, mergers and acquisitions and, and Chinese investment in the economy. Of course, we have it in the US as well. Um, but then also specifically on these, on these high target, high priority areas that again, fall under this, this policy, I think of reciprocity. And just, I think one of the things that people are sort of watching in the, in the Biden administration is, um, is, is how much uh, effort and how much prioritization they are going to put on this area themselves. What's your, what's your feeling of that, Misha? 
Well, again, we, we don't know yet because they haven't come out with their own um, core documents. Um, they have stated repeatedly that they're not going to be um, precipitously backing off from what the Trump administration did vis-a-vis China. Other, other areas, um, yes, but not, not on the China side. Um, they have maintained the sanctions. They've maintained the trade tariffs. We've all sort of forgotten that the trade tariffs are still there. Um, they've maintained the block on, on Huawei. Um, there's been some tinkering around the edges, such as uh, with the TikTok decision, um, but they stated that that was actually going to be part of a, of a, of a more comprehensive review. Um, I think at this point, it's hard to go back pre-2017, quite frankly. Um, I think it's hard because on the one hand, Trump was just a manifestation of a change in the U.S. position towards China, and one that I think has actually been been shared largely in the world. I think when you look at the U.K. deciding to send the Queen Elizabeth in, talking about clamping down uh, on some of the propaganda and influence campaigns, obviously struggling with the Huawei decision and, and a little bit of back and forth, but but you know certainly having the debate. Um, that's being mirrored. It's being mirrored in Japan. It's it's obviously mirrored in Australia, which is undergoing economic warfare today. It's mirrored in New Delhi. Uh, it's mirrored in a lot of in a lot of nations. It's actually not just about the U.S. and it wasn't just about Donald Trump. And so the Biden administration, I think, has is part of this new era in U.S.-China relations. And and one thing I would just say to to um, wrap this up is, um, it's easy to make it all about China. The Indo-Pacific is a much bigger region. Uh, it's much larger than just China, as important as China is. Um, India is probably at this point in population-wise larger than, than China. Japan is remains the world's third largest economy with India following very quickly. Taiwan is crucial on semiconductors. South Korea is important. Australia is important. Britain has something like 1.6 million um, citizens and, and passport holders in the region. Um, it's really about what type of Indo-Pacific do we want to see? And so as much as, and I completely 100% agree with Sophia that all of us, not just the UK, we all need to build competencies and build language capabilities and build deep uh, area knowledge uh, about China. We also have to do it more broadly about the Indo-Pacific because it's, it's really about how this vital region fits in into a globalized world, a world in which there's more calls for nationalism, protectionism, support for um, home populations. And we have to figure out how we work with those who share our values. And it's not simply about dealing with China. No, I totally agree. And I, I think the um, the step forward that we're taking in, in achieving dialogue partner state with the ASEAN countries and also accession to the CPTPP will help the UK on that journey. Of I think, Sophia, you talked about embedding ourselves um, in the region. Uh, Sophia, I'm just going to bring you in. In terms of our, our wider ally, allies, or in, in case you want to sort of come back on some of the, the US stuff as well, I mean, there are people who are worried a bit about where the U, EU is positioned. Um, what's your read of the, the wider sort of global position on the Indo-Pacific? So, I mean, just to come back on the points that Mish has made about the US, I mean, I think it Obviously, the uh, recent developments uh, with this WinTech situation, with the um, uh, purchasing the semiconductor plant. I mean, the obviously that plant is not uh, has not been working at the height of its powers, but it's it's so it's almost more a, a sort of distressed company buyer. But um, it's exactly the sort of thing that we would like to see the NSI 
uh, bill actually kind of it, it intervening in um, that's the sort of safeguard that that uh, should be activated to to prevent those kind of situations. I understand that part of the reason it sort of um, seemed to slip through as far as it did was because um, we we're not actually in in the phase of implementing that quite yet. Um, but I think it does highlight. Um, you know, the the reality is that this uh, choice that we are making to take a much tougher and I think wise approach to our potential security vulnerabilities is going to require the investment of significant resources and will quite possibly create some significant bottlenecks. Um, and what we need to do is make sure that that is not going to discourage scrutiny. Um, it, it, this is a kind of really fundamental change to the way in which we organized government, because I think the fact that you've got a lot of scrutiny for the NSI bill sort of coming, sitting with bays, I think just, you know, is is something that this these decisions are needing to factor in input from intelligence services, the FCDO, uh, potentially higher education, the cabinet office. So I think um, we need to really um, not just pay lip service for the idea of a kind of integration agenda. We we need the system set up to actually allow us to take those decisions and and to not be sort of caught off guard by these um, by these sorts of developments. So uh, we need to feel a lot more confident in those processes and that and that will require investments and, and, and it's a long-term commitment. Um, the other thing I would just flag as well is that, you know, the United States uh, will necessarily have a fundamentally distinct relationship with China. Um, and so I don't think we should always expect a full degree of convergence um, and, some aspects of this actually reflect the realities of the domestic political situation. Um, in the US, China has obviously become a sort of symbol of, um, I suppose, their asymmetrical benefits and, and costs of globalization. And uh, so it's been a much more emotive kind of um, proxy for, for that uh, debate, which has obviously played out in every advanceable democracy, including our own. But um, obviously, we, we had that kind of expressive moment um, through uh, the conversation about our membership with the European Union. So I think um, it's important to recognize that distinction. And that does play into um, core policy choices. So the, our capacity to join the CPTPP partly reflects a very different domestic environment. Um, and I think, you know, obviously it's it's completely feasible that the United States may wish uh, to accede in the future, but um, certainly in the short term, that just doesn't feel like something that um, is going to be made a priority. So in some ways, that distinction between opposition from the United States can also Act, um, you know, support our strategic advantage in the UK. Um, so, so I think that's on the US side. And then, in terms of our European allies, I mean, I think they are in a state of flux. And and I, as a, I would like to emphasize that I don't think <laughs> there's anyone who particularly feels that they're supremely confident in in their position at the moment, because I think everybody is is sort of frantically evaluating and and every day discovering new potential vulnerabilities. So I don't think anyone feels they've 100% got the safeguards in place to be able to exercise a fully confident relationship. Um, but obviously, the situation in, in the EU remains quite very and um, there are important distinctions e even between key 
um, member states such as France and Germany. I think, you know, it's important to emphasize that the um, CAI, which sort of uh, is kind of on ice and then off ice and, and back on ice, um, you know, the, the what was set out there is not hugely distinct from um, the nature of what was being discussed in the uh, phase one trade talks between China and the US. And, and obviously, if you think about the kind of economic and investment relationship that um, Australia, even after a process of entanglement, still pursues with, with China, you know, I think we need to be realistic um, about that. Um, but, you know, I think I think the fact that um, you have core member states, and, and let's not forget both France and Germany in election cycles at the moment of the next 12 months. Um, I think the, that does create a lot of uncertainty, and I think that that is a fundamental obstacle at the moment for the EU itself being able to um, act as a kind of cohesive and credible foreign policy actor. Thank you. Brilliant. And I think someone had actually asked about the, the CAI in the questions, which we'll now and to. I'm actually going to bring in your co-author, Sophia Rana Mitter, who we're very delighted to have with us this evening. He's got a question. Hello. Just checking I can be heard. Is that all right? Yes, we've got you. Yes, good. Okay, well, I hope I didn't sort of uh, appear like Banquo's Ghost at the Feast with two brilliant panellists who've been speaking extremely uh, cogently uh, here. I thought I would just throw in um, a question, which seems to me a really central one that a lot of people, certainly me, are, are grappling with at the moment, which is how, as the UK builds Asia-Pacific allies, it calibrates one of the issues that's become very prominent in UK discourse about this area, and that's values. Um, if I say Hong Kong, if I say Xinjiang, I think everyone on this call will know what we're talking about to, to, to go further to explain that. It's notable, Misha, that Japan, a country you know extraordinarily well, while of course it's uh, established liberal democracy and a Western ally of, of an extremely solid nature, has been quite conspicuous in not really dealing with the values side of issues in the way that the UK has been doing quite prominently. Um, Australia, country of course, Sophia is incredibly knowledgeable about, does quite a lot on this, but maybe you know calibrates in a slightly different way from the, the UK, not least because of its economic and other relationships. Although of course it probably doesn't feel like that at the moment with, with the boycott. So I suppose, the, the overall question, and you know, it's not one that's capable of an easy answer, is, is the UK an outlier, and shall we be pleased to be, about the fact that we have been very vocal about values issues in the Asia-Pacific region in recent months and years, and how can we calibrate it so we don't seem like we're just talking about China, when in fact the Indo-Pacific region has an awful lot of values-related, human rights-related problems for countries with which we do want to have closer alliances? Fantastic question. Who would like to, Misha, would you like to come to that first? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in and, and uh, obviously Rana, um, you know, can answer the, the question better than, than I can, uh, whether he had asked it or not. Um, I, I think that uh, first the values issue is, is crucial. And I actually wanted to bring it up. I mean, we should not shy away from the fact that this has been an extremely difficult year uh, for both of our countries, particularly for the United States. And that has uh, tarnished our image and, and called into question um, not only our values, but then the, the governing structures that we have that express those values. Um, that said, though, I, I think it, it, you know, it is, um, you know, it's a combination of opportunism and sophistry to argue that 
you know, neither of our countries really are liberal, neither of them uh, value unalienable rights, neither of them uh, are, are really supportive of pluralism uh, and the like, which of course our, our friends in the CCP are, are want to do with, with increasing vigor. Um, and so the values issue I think should be up front and center. Um, it may not have been a priority of, of President Trump, but it was uh, a priority of, of former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And I think that the current Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, has also raised it um, explicitly with regard to Xinjiang, uh, where the designation of China committing genocide, uh, which is not a US government designation, it's a State Department designation. Those are two different things. Um, uh, where that's been upheld, uh, and of course, in, in regard to Hong Kong. So uh, I, think, I think this is very important. Um, getting, getting the allies on board is an interesting question. Japan traditionally does not let these values questions play a major role in, in the foreign policy calculations that it makes, um, specifically with regard to trade. And yet, if you look at where Japan puts the weight of its efforts, or, or increasingly does so, uh, on maritime security issues uh, and uh, international uh, or regional institutions, um, such as CPTPP and the like, I think it's very clear that values undergird that, you know, these values of transparency and openness. And so I think that, you know, it, it can be big tent in the sense of um, not forcing necessarily some nations to, um, to go against what is either tradition uh, diplomatically on their part uh, or sort of outside of their comfort level, uh, but at the same time understand that they're not, well, in, in a positive sense, they are fellow travelers with us, right? They're fellow travelers on, on the liberal values side. That said though, I think we should be arguing this very uh, robustly. And I think the UK should be making uh, uh, a specific, taking a specific lead role in this. Uh, I think it's very important. And I think if we talk about not just China, but the Indo-Pacific that we want to see, you have to offer an alternative. We can't simply be China light in terms of saying, you know what, we're going to be technocratic and we're going to be efficient uh, and so on and so forth. And therefore throw in your lot with us because you're going to get easier, freer money. No, there has to be a real, uh, a real alternative to the type of state-centric authoritarian techno-authoritarian surveillance state that China has created at home in which it helps to export abroad simply because it, it, it benefits its own security. So I, I would answer Rana's question in the beginning in, in that sense, which is to say we should unabashedly be doing these things and not be always simply apologetic about what our, where our societies are and what we've done. Um, if you look at where we are today in the United States, there have been far rougher patches such as 1776, such as uh, 1860 and 18, to 1865, um, 1861 to 65. Um, we should not simply be apologetic uh, about where we are. There is a reason that our borders are overrun with people who want to come to the United States and it's not because this is hell on earth. And I think we need to be articulating and arguing that and expressing it in the policies that we have. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, there's, uh, it's absolutely true that we've been on this process kind of bringing together allies and building a baseline of consensus to challenge China on a handful of really core human rights issues. Um, and 
I think that's a good thing um, because at least we've got some basis on which to be moving forward. And I think China does watch and listen to these things, even if it rejects them. Um, but of course, Rana, as you well know, uh, the capacity to fundamentally be persuading China or the idea that there's going to be some kind of shaming process is 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 uh, is sort of for the birds. Um, but I do think there are two really tangible things that we can be doing through a values agenda. Um, the first is uh, embedding our values in new governance frameworks. So when we play a leading role and, uh, you know, obviously I, I strongly believe that Britain has particular expertise in designing international governance frameworks. Some of that is a kind of historical legacy that's a bit more complicated. And some of that's just kind of what we're rather good at. Um, we tend to be quite good at these sort of administrative regulation standards um, kinds of functions. Um, and I think, you know, there's some really core new frontiers of these, which China is uh, taking a vested interest in. Um, and so we should be playing a proactive role in ensuring that those new frameworks, whether that's AI, tech, the open internet, space governance, uh, that we embed our values in those. So they are built um, in the image of a liberal open world order. I also think that this question about the word openness um, as opposed to democracy or liberal. I mean, there's, I think we're kind of getting to a point where we're starting to have more pragmatic conversations about, you know, there are certainly partners, as you note, in the Indo-Pacific who um, are not democracies or don't share all of our values, um, but they also prioritize openness in an economic sense um, and share some of our interests on China. And we need to find um, a clear position on how we're going to engage with that and what that means. Um, and I think the other second important way that we can embed values or project values is, I, you know, I think Mish has alluded to this, but I, th I think there's a conversation that we need to have around cultural diplomacy. And um, we're actually working on another BFPG paper on this because I think it's quite timely after we've had a period of, of you know, I think important warranted introspection about how our democracies are functioning and how they could be improved. Um, we need to find a way in the 21st century to sort of accommodate these very diverse modern societies, um, you know, a, with a democratic framework that where we still fundamentally believe in the values um, that bring us together and, uh, and our sort of, I suppose, the, the sort of preeminence of those values and their importance moving forward. And so um, I think, you know, we should be, you know, a confident nation should be able to um, be critical. And actually, that's one of the things that is that really sets us apart from a country like China, um, that we can have uh, differing voices and, and we can look inside and, and uh, you know, uh, highlight areas where we could be doing better. So I think those are important conversations, but we do also need to be absolutely clear about why our values are important and why for developing nations um, that are sort of just starting together together fledgling institutions and develop new frameworks of legislation and governance and, and, and regulations, why they should be developed with a liberal imprint um, and the role that we can play in advancing those. Mm. No, I think that's so interesting. And I know we'd talked a bit about expanding the regulatory horizons that we have 
to be a more independent um, international organization because it combines the UK's expertise and in innovation and also creating these credible regulatory systems. Um, brilliant. I'm, I'm going to come to Ian Bond next, who is the uh, at the Centre for European Reform. Ian. Thanks very much, Claire. Um, and uh, nice to see you, Misha. Long time no see. Um, so my question was, um, before the, the integrated review was published, there were a number of senior US voices, particularly former military officers, who expressed concern that the UK was dissipating its military efforts, that it should be concentrating on the Euro-Atlantic theatre and um, you know, basically leave the, the US to deal with Asia. Now, I would guess that you would disagree with that, but do you think there is a, a risk, and, and maybe this is a question to Sophia as well, but do you think there is a risk that the UK ends up with an understrength military effort in two theatres rather than having a fully manned up capability in one place um, and leaving the, the Indo-Pacific region to the highly capable Indo-Pacific powers, including the US and India and Australia and Japan. Uh, Ian, good to see you, sort of. Good to hear you, at least. Um, and uh, I think it's an important question. I would say, um, first, broadly, that um, I wish the Integrated Review had received more um, attention here in Washington. I mean, I was paying attention because I had been uh, working with Claire on, on uh, the report and, and talking with uh, friends like Rana regularly and Tom, of course. Um, so I was aware of it. I, I uh, Well, first of all, you know, everything was shut down. So I think a lot of maybe the debates we might have had and interactions and ability to talk about uh, the role that the UK was going to play globally as well as in the Indo-Pacific simply didn't happen. It's just been a you know sort of lost year. Um, but that said, even with that, there wasn't nearly as much focus um, as I thought there would be. And I did see some of those comments by both, both former military and then civilian Defense Department um, officials. Um, I, think, I think the answer, um, I think it's, it's a, uh, it is a well-founded concern. I think the answer is uh, to be realistic about the role that the UK can play in a security, in the security realm in the Indo-Pacific. And I think it is important. I think, um, first of all, the, where, when you look at where the Commonwealth nations are, when you look at where uh, the UK's interests in the region are, they're really a little bit different from the US. You have the US sort of hold up there in the, in the Northeast, uh, particularly with Korea, of course, and, and um, Japan. Uh, and then, the, you know, the trade routes, obviously, down through the South China Sea into the Indian Ocean. And then Britain is, is in this, this sort of southern tier, uh, not exclusively, but a lot of it uh, down in the southern tier in the Indian Ocean. I think, therefore, they complement uh, each other very well. I don't think anyone expects um, the UK to, to forward port, you know, one of its only two aircraft carriers in, in, in the, um, uh, the Indo-Pacific. It's hard enough for the US to do that um, since our numbers are down. And in fact, as we talk today, um, I didn't check uh, the map today, but there is no US aircraft carrier in the Indo-Pacific because the Ronald Reagan uh, was pulled forward out of, uh, out of the region uh, to handle, um, I think, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Anyway, it's, it's not in, in the region today. We don't have an aircraft carrier. So um, it's hard for everyone. Um, but I think it's important when we talk about the idea that what happens in the Indo-Pacific 
doesn't just stay in the Indo-Pacific, right? It's, it's a global issue for trade. It's a global issue for the flow of people. Certainly the, the UK's concern over Hong Kong uh, and British uh, national uh, overseas passports and the like. Um, these are, uh, when we talk about the, tra- uh, the technology issues, uh, and you can talk about climate change, things like that as well. Um, all of these are, are areas that concern us all. And therefore, the more of a presence that Britain has and the most visible form of presence is through an aircraft carrier or a, an RAF squadron or, a, or a, you know, a, a Royal Gurkha's training base, whatever it is, those help balance out the, the type of um, regional equilibrium that we want from the security arrangement. Uh, and so I think you have to be realistic and, and say that when Britain can be there, that's important. The degree to which it can be there on a semi-regular basis or a regular basis in a non-crisis environment is very important. Should there be a European crisis, I don't think anyone would doubt the fact that that the UK would be um, focused on the European theater, on its NATO commitments uh, and the like, and its partners in Europe, and that the US would be there supporting it. Um, but, But hopefully we don't live in a world that's constantly reeling from actual deployable military uh, assets, crisis to crisis. That's not the world we want to be in. And so having Britain um, play this role, the the Queen Elizabeth doing a very long and eight-month deployment, um, not just in the Indo-Pacific, but ending up there and sort of capstoning there, that I think is very important. And and I'll just wind up by saying, I think even in another way, um, it sends signals that are important back in Europe that the community of liberal nations does work together. The community of liberal nations, as Sophia said, doesn't always have perfect congruence, but shares values and shares interests that they will work with other partners on. And that may help send signals back into the European theater uh, about how these nations will act together if they're acting together in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it, absolutely is a warranted question. I think it's difficult to look at British government finances um, and particularly the fact that, you know, we're having to take decisions like temporarily reducing our international development expenditure um, and not uh, immediately move to a zero-sum frame um, about an Indo-Pacific tilt. I think, you know, it's, it's, obvious that uh, any kind of new investment in the Indo-Pacific is going to have to come from somewhere. Um, I think the review made absolutely clear that the European security framework remains our fundamental paradigm um, and, you know, our ambition to be the leading European power in NATO, I think, is is absolutely front and center. Um, we've also set out an ambition to be the leading European presence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I'm less clear on how, how that will actually be constituted, but I think there's a way for us to do this in a kind of uh, in a way that prioritizes precision. Um, and focuses on the areas where we can add the most value. I think there will be realistically many areas in which our role is to amplify um, rather than to lead. Um, and, you know, I think there will also be ways in which, um, you know, we we are not necessarily going to be boots on the ground, but will be people in the room uh, designing those kinds of frameworks. So, you know, I think something like... Uh, Sending an aircraft carrier, I think, in in way in one way, it's sort of uh, 
looks as though this is all about kind of hard competencies, hard power, but um, in a way, I think it actually is speaking to a more symbolic um, and important area in which we can genuinely lead and I think um, and others would look for us to do so, which is around uh, maritime law and and freedom of navigation, which is something that we have historically played a really strong role in. So I think um, there's kind of a, a you know, a, a, you can read that the presence there in a couple of ways. Um, I certainly would imagine that we'll have quite a diversified presence and that we'll be looking to complement and add our voice to um, a lot of other existing actors in the region rather than necessarily trying to reinvent the wheel. And I, I think that the review uh, tries to make that point. Um, but something we do need to watch out for is actually new spheres of potential conflict and, and kind of uh, power competition, uh, like the Arctic Circle, for example, and, you know, China itself and Russia are both kind of eyeing off new roles there. And uh, so there are questions for, for uh, um, the NATO alliance, for example, about how we sort of want, whether we want to extend that up to be sort of covering that space. And, and of course, will that require greater investments and, and more time? You know, Antarctica as well is also um, becoming increasingly contested. So I think um, it's, it's absolutely right that we ask the question about a, a kind of competitive framework of resources. And the reality is um, none of this is going to be kind of diffusing or simplifying in the future. We, we are living now very firmly in a, um, an era of kind of multipolar fragmenting and, and proliferating threats that are moving not just between regions, but also between different spheres of our society, our economy, our democracies. Um, and so, you know, I think one conversation that we need to start having more is around the burden sharing conversation that's sort of been taking place within NATO. I think we, that's the sort of broader conversation that we need to be having within um, the Western and liberal alliances more generally, because for example, it may seem crazy to us in 10 years time or 20 years time that we had a period there where in effect, um, France and Britain were almost competing around international development and aid, foreign aid investments in Africa. Um, when you have a risk of, of China effectively um, maneuvering and buying up strategic ports, um, you know, having strong influence in setting up governance frameworks in, in developing countries, I think you know, we really need to look at the bigger picture. And, and I think that's what we mean when we talk about an existential threat. Fantastic. And just picking up on something that, uh, Sophia, you were mentioning in terms of climate change, which obviously we know is affecting uh, where the geopolitical needs are. Uh, how else do you think that climate change plays into the Indo-Pacific conversation? I know it's something that when I've spoken to um, representatives from, from India, it's something that they're very interested in, which is something that we're building um, bigger ties with, with various allies on us. It's something that we're just a, a, such a front leader on. I think we've got a huge legitimacy as an international actor on climate change because there's an extraordinary level of public consent, which you know many of our allies do, do not have when they're going into the negotiating table. So I think we are a genuinely powerful and persuasive voice. And I think it highlights how important it is to build public consent and bring the British people along with you on, on the global Britain agenda so that you can have that confidence. Um, and we're going to need all of it <laughs> because 
COP26 is, is going to be challenging. I think the what we've seen in the Leaders' Summit, um, the Climate Leaders' Summit that, that President Biden led, the G7 conversations, you know, these, these were trying to lay a lot of the groundwork um, for the conversations ahead of COP26. I think, you know, things are moving in a more positive direction. It's obvious that uh, we're in a better place than we were a year ago, but um, it's it, there is still there's still a lot to be done. And I think, you know, Britain is going to have to look at our relationships in the Indo-Pacific uh, with a very long-term lens. I mean, in, in Australia, for example, they understand that those economic relationships that they've built in the region are, are based on really long-term investments in diplomacy, people-to-people -people link, educational links, etc. cetera. Um, and it's not always easy for us to show up and demand um, action on climate change or commitments on climate change without that those kind of other foundations in there. So I think we have to play a long game with those relationships and, and in terms of our powers of persuasion. And with regards to China and climate change, I think we have to be realistic that China, you know, is is listening to what we've been saying. They understand that, uh, you know, um, in in Britain and amongst all of our allies, we we continually identify as climate change as, as kind of the single area in many ways. Um, uh, that that people are still uh, comfortable pursuing a kind of um, proactive uh, collaboration of of, of equals um, around, and and so China is obviously very aware of that, and I think is increasingly going to be using that as a point of leverage. So um, I think we have to be realistic about what we can achieve there. But um, yeah, I think look, all eyes will be on Britain. It's a huge test of our diplomacy. I think Indo-Pacific partners are going to be, um, you know, receptive to having these conversations. I think we need to understand that they cannot be taken alone. Um, but I do also think that we just need to be aware of the other spheres of influence uh, within the Indo-Pacific, which, which, you know, and other forums through which um, Indo-Pacific nations may be willing to make those kinds of commitments. So, so once again, I think we, we just really need to immerse ourselves in understanding the landscape there and the different dynamics going on rather than sort of just showing up and um, expecting everybody to listen. Thanks. And um, I think we've probably just got time for, for one more question. And I think uh, it's come up sort of at various points this evening, I think is the heart of what's going to happen at the next 10 to 20 years is international collaboration. Uh, and obviously, we've seen, I think, throughout the pandemic, uh, not as much of that as we would like. So how do you see the path forward, either Sophia or Misha, and in terms of trying to get both our allies uh, and you know, forge new allies to take on the big challenges, which will help us build a better sort of set of relationships in the Indo-Pacific, but also meet some of the global challenges that we're going to see in the decades ahead. Uh, well, I'll I'll take a first crack at it. Um, look, every nation acts, you know, in, in accordance with what it considers are its interests, uh, and I think you know that that will never change. I mean, some nations you know, more willing to contribute to a global public good than, than others. Um, but it, it always has to start with the question of national interest. I think when you look at the Indo-Pacific, the idea that uh, since the end of World War II, um, the nations of the region, but the, the larger world, you know, and, and the leading world powers had created an incredibly resilient, um, beneficial system 
that with obviously ups and downs allowed so many of these nations when they chose to, to begin integrating into the world economy, um, to find support when they were liberalizing, for example, to gain uh, access to uh, the flow of knowledge through scientific networks and research networks and educational exchange networks uh, and the like. Uh, and of course, in, in the, the fundamental sense, to not be uh, the victims, as most of them are, of a, of a regional systemic war, meaning you know, a global war or a war that consumes the Indo-Pacific. Um, we've had an, you know, historically an incredibly long period of, of, of relative regional peace in the Indo-Pacific. And so, uh, and obviously there were things like the, the um, 1962 border war between China and India, um, the, uh, the, the brief war between uh, China and Vietnam in 1979, uh, you know, takings of, of territory in uh, the South China Sea and the like. But for the most part, it's been, it's been pretty Pacific. Um, so on the one hand, people forget and nations forget that cooperation really is what uh, allows um, these types of systems to continue. And if you look at that, it's then very concerning that all of the territorial uh, disputes in the region uh, have not been resolved, but in fact have festered right at a point where nations were getting wealthier, were getting more integrated, both regionally as well as globally, that they should have come to resolve their issues the way that Europe did. And instead you don't, you have now the greatest buildup of troops uh, in uh, the Himalayas between China and India is happening right now. And of course we know what's going on uh, in the South China Sea. And of course we see what, in, you know, Taiwan's a special case, but we see what's going on there uh, and the like. So cooperation, I think, um, is more likely to come when nations get very worried that this structure that they actually didn't pay that much attention to is about to break down and they will be negatively impacted by that. Um, I think that's why you see that CPTPP went forward after the US dropped out. I certainly would like to see the US get back into that, but Britain has also asked for a session. I think Britain should be into it. South Korea should be part of it. It should be broader uh, from all of these, uh, you know, uh, from the perspective of the partners. Um, I think you see it in the quad that 10 years ago, the nations, uh, the leading nations of the, of the region were not willing to be in a quad. Today, they're not only willing to be in a quad, they're thinking about expanding that quad. Um, so I think that cooperation is unfortunately, it, it happens when things are going poorly. Uh, and when things go well, it's harder to get people to commit because they think, you know, why, why do I, you know, collectively as a nation have to? So I think we're actually going to see more cooperation uh, going forward. I think the stronger that, um, you know, this is a bit of a reductionist argument, but the stronger that China gets, the more that nations in the region get worried. They get worried about having no other choices. They get worried about having no other partners. They get worried about being forced into a position of having to, for example, um, uh, accede to uh, one belt, one road, as opposed to a robust blue dot network, things, things like that. Um, but in order to make that cooperation work, you actually have to have concrete, real uh, alternatives and concrete real proposals and suggestions. That's still where we're lacking. Blue Dot is a, is a good idea. It needs to be scaled up dramatically. Um, people pay a lot of attention to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, but the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, still provides far more loans. It still needs to be um, developed. The Quad should be 
institutionalized and expanded in terms of, of cooperative partnerships. Um, again, I think if you look at the policy exchange report, it had a lot of suggestions there. Parliament, I think, can play a major role in pushing government to focus in on a few of those recommendations and saying this is where the UK can really play a leading role or certainly as Sophia was saying, a very supportive role, um, but, but doing so uh, in a way that fits the needs for cooperative engagement uh, in the region. It's not going to be everything, but it certainly is going to be certain things such as cybersecurity, for example, or FinTech development so that you get the spread of FinTech into less developed areas. So cooperation, I think, um, will come because things are getting more uncertain, but it will work only when we are very, very specific about it. And to be quite frank, as it is in, in the States uh, with Congress, I think parliament plays a major role in, in making those specifics priorities for national policy and then being acted upon. I think that's a very good set of instructions to, to, for parliamentarians on this call to, to take forward. Uh, Sophia, in your sort of final remarks, as we, I think this will be coming to a close after this, do you share that sense of optimism then? Look, I, I think most of our partners absolutely welcome us taking a role in the Indo-Pacific and paying more attention. And I, I, I don't honestly think we have a choice uh, but to be uh, having a greater stake in the region. We need to invest and understand um, what we're doing. We need to understand their cultures. We need to understand their existing regional frameworks and alliances and the particular relationships uh, that are playing out, whether that's between Japan and South Korea and so on, which, which um, I think are less well understood um, over here. Um, but I think, you know, we've, we've got two processes that need to happen simultaneously. And it's really important that we do both. So we need to expand our reach into the region and be investing in these new partnerships in a long-term way where, you know, and, and our allies in the region, uh, old and new, will appreciate consistency from us and precision about our strategic objectives. Um, and some deference and understanding of, of the existing frameworks that already exist there. So, so we need to make a long-term uh, investment in, in new allies and relationships, but we also absolutely have to shore up our existing relationships. I mean, I think to some degree, having um, an element of competition uh, between us and all of our European allies who are also seeking new roles in the Indo-Pacific uh, could be a good thing. It could lead to a sort of race to the finish and, and to the top and, and sort of, um, I, I guess, focus minds on, on where we can um, really exercise our strategic advantage. But we've got to look at the bigger picture here as well, which is that, you know, ultimately, we've obviously had quite a lot of um, friction in, in the Western Alliance over the past five or six years. And I think the G7 demonstrated a willingness to, to move forward and look to the future, but we need to make sure that that foundation, that, that liberal democracies remain the foundation of our alliances um, and that we continue to invest in those relationships and work on thinking about how we tackle some of these issues uh, together, which are, are going to be much bigger than any of us individually can. And um, obviously the, the threats and risks 
posed by China and other authoritarian states are considerable and um, a collective response uh, is the only way that we're going to, to, to really make um, progress on this and, and of course the other existential crisis of climate change. So uh, let's absolutely invest in our new relationships and alliances. It's the right thing to do, um, but we must also not neglect our, our, our really foundational alliances as well in, amongst liberal democracies. Well, there's plenty of food for thought in that discussion this evening. And I'd just like to thank both Misha and Sophia for such a thoughtful and detailed discussion on, on what I think is one of the most exciting parts of the foreign policy debate at the moment. And thank you all for joining us. And a huge thank you, of course, to the China Research Group for facilitating tonight's discussion for all their leading work on this issue as well. Thank you. Thank you.